Thanks, Matt. Good. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Like Matt said, uh, happy Father's Day. And also, like Matt said, I know that this can be a hard day for some. And wherever you are today, I hope that you'd be encouraged and comforted by our Heavenly Father. And I just feel like I need to share that though it's a hard thing to be a father, as a young father, I'm consistently, consistently encouraged by the, by the man of God that we have in our church. And you guys are just such a good example for me and for all fathers, so that, I really appreciate that. And I know that I and many others are really blessed, so thank you. Well, this morning we're going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And that passage is the Palm Sunday passage, the triumphal entry. And it's a passage that's usually reserved for Palm Sunday. And we're going to be visiting it this morning in a different context, in a different day of the year. So I'm hoping that by doing that, we can approach it with fresh eyes and we can approach it with soft hearts. And that maybe some of the things that we've learned about this passage that may be incorrect or some of the implications that we have that, again, may not be there, can be fleshed out. And we might learn something new from a passage that's so familiar to so many of us. I'm going to read that for us this morning. Again, it's Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And it will be on the screen behind me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill that, that what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Bow your heads in prayer with me before we begin. Father God, I thank you for the privilege to speak your word, and I pray that you'd guard my lips as I speak to your people, and you would not let any folly escape them, Lord, and I pray that you would bless your people today with your word, and that we would go from here challenged, encouraged, and edified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, this is a familiar passage to many of us. It's Palm Sunday, and I know at least as I grew up in church, 
this passage was preached every Palm Sunday. And even though it's familiar, I'd like to just recap the story very quickly. We see that Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem, the place he's been traveling to since at least chapter 18 of Matthew. He's approaching it from the east, having just come through Jericho and passing Bethpage, coming over the Mount of Olives. As he's traveling, he's followed by a crowd of his followers, his disciples. Some of them are Galileans from Nazareth and Capernaum, the places where he lived and did ministry. And some of them he gathered along the way. So Jesus enters Jerusalem with a crowd of disciples and followers before him and behind him. And they're shouting and exclaiming from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And as he enters Jerusalem, with his disciples shouting these praises, the crowds in Jerusalem have a slightly different response. They're very skeptical. And they say, who is this? We don't know this man, this Jesus. And they ask the crowds, his followers, who is this man? And they say, well, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. Now, it's interesting that they choose to describe Jesus as a prophet here, but he was just that, a prophet. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the way he chose to do it, was a prophetic statement. He was, making, he was proclaiming a prophetic message here. And the actions and how he chose to do these actions carried a prophetic significance. Now, it's not uncommon. In fact, there's a lot of precedent for Old Testament prophets to make and claim large and important messages with big figurative actions. We see an example of this in Ezekiel 4 where God tells Ezekiel to lie on the ground for a grand total of 430 days and then eat bread that he's baked himself over a pile of human dung. And he does this to foreshadow the exile of his people. Hosea does the same thing. He's told by God to bear children and call them names like no mercy and not my people. So Israel's prophets have a long history of using grand prophetic actions, huge symbolic actions, to really bring home God's messages. And Jesus' action, his entrance to Jerusalem here is such a prophetic action. And his main message is one that we're perhaps familiar with. And it's our big idea this morning, and it's Jesus is the Messiah. But we'll find that that word Messiah has a lot of baggage in this time, and even now it still has a lot of baggage. So Jesus qualifies it and brings a bunch of nuance and brings all these Old Testament threads into it to teach us and help us understand we're going to get into some of those details this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' prophetic action and the message he was trying to get across, and then we're going to bring it back home and understand what that means for us. And I want to give us a little bit of a warning this morning because there's a lot of Old Testament stuff going on here, and I weighed the, weighed the pros and cons when I was preparing of how much 
should I get into all, all of this Old Testament stuff? And I've decided to err on the side of too much because this is what Jesus was saying. This is the message he was trying to get across. And if we just shrink it off and say, well, there's some Old Testament stuff here, but we're preaching through the New Testament, that would be unfair and that would be unhonest, dishonest to what Jesus was trying to say. And if we're going to be faithful in trying to hear our Lord, we need to be faithful to really understand and dig deep into what he's saying. So bear with me. We're going to do kind of a data dump right now. The first aspect of Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem that has prophetic significance and Old Testament parallels is the route he took to get to Jerusalem. Like I said, he travels from Galilee southward, but also goes westward. You can see, I have a map up here. Galilee's in the north, and he's trying to get to Judea. But instead of just going straight north to south, it says that he takes a path that goes beyond the Jordan so that he can enter Jerusalem by the east gate, coming through Jericho and entering Jerusalem from the east. This is certainly out of Jesus' way, any way you slice it. I mean, historians and academics can't really decide exactly what Jesus' travel itinerary was, but any way you understand it, Jesus has gone out of his way to take a very specific path. He's added time to his journey. He's made his life more difficult to do this exact thing. So we need to ask why. Why is he doing this? The answer is that there is a significant amount of Old Testament prophetic material and Old Testament characters that are associated with this exact path, an entrance from the east of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives. The first parallel we see is King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, we see David has been exiled from Jerusalem. His son Absalom has usurped his throne and chased him out. And as he flees from the holy city, he flees out the east gate and over the Mount of Olives and continues to go eastward. And later in chapter 19, when he finally defeats his son's armies and returns as the king to Jerusalem, he comes back the same way he left. He comes from the east over the Mount of Olives presumably into the East Gate. Jesus wants us to pick up on this. Any Old Testament Jew would have. Any person in Jesus' day who knew their Torah, which they did, would have known that this is what happened. So Jesus is doing this to say, I am a prophetic messianic king from the line of David. It's a messianic declaration he's making. And his followers understood this. They call him, when they're singing his praises, Hosanna to the son of David. There's a second Old Testament parallel I want to draw out, and it's from the prophet Ezekiel. In chapter 11, Ezekiel's recounting how Israel's idolatry has caused them to break covenant with God. And as a result, God's glory lifts up and departs from the temple. 
and it leaves the temple and goes eastward. It exits through the east gate and travels west to the exiles who are in what is called Chaldea. I want to read for you later in Ezekiel, chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. And this is the account of God's glory returning to Israel. Then he led me to a gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God of Israel, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, and the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Cherubar Canal. And I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Jesus is not only stating that he is a messianic king from the line of David, he's going further than that. He's taking an extra step and saying, I'm the glory of God returning to the temple. In the New Testament, Paul picks up on this theme in his letter to the Colossians, where he says in chapter 1, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, peace seemed to be on the mind of Paul here, but I think it was on the mind of Jesus and then subsequently Matthew as well. Because the next aspect of Jesus' prophetic declaration here is the donkey he rides in on. As we saw in our call to worship this morning and in our passage this morning, Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And he says that Jesus, by entering Jerusalem, in the way he does is fulfilling this prophecy. I want to read that for us again. Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah understands this Davidic messianic king to be a king that does not wage warfare but brings peace. This is obvious for two reasons. One, he says as much in verse 10. Right after, he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The second reason we would be inclined to see peace from this passage is the fact that Jesus is riding a donkey is significant in and of itself. It's not uncommon, specifically in Old Testament history, for a king to ride a donkey. In fact, when Solomon was coronated in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38, he afterwards rode a donkey in Jerusalem. 
But it is significant to note that a king would never do this in a time of war. A king would only ride a donkey in a time of peace. Entering and leaving the city in a time of war would require the king to be on a war horse. So by making this, by riding this steed and drawing on the prophet Zechariah, God is, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm a messianic king, but I'm also a peaceful messianic king. My mission here is to bring peace. New Testament scholar and commentator R.T. France has a quote that sums this up very well, and I, I want to share it with you since it's so succinct and so powerful. He says, There is a subtle tension within Zechariah's description of this messianic king. He is victorious, yet meek, and his triumph is received rather than won. He rides a donkey rather than a war horse, and his kingdom will be one of peace rather than of coercion. Now this was an important point for Jesus to make at this time because the predominant understanding of what the Messiah would be was a military leader who would come to overthrow whatever political or military power was oppressing Israel at the time. Here it's the Romans. In fact, they had a common recent example of what the Messiah might look like to them in someone named Judas Maccabeus. He was a Jewish zealot who led a military revolt around 200 years before this incident. He cleansed the temple of Jerusalem, purged it from the desecration that the Greek occupiers had caused there, and reestablished worship. In fact, established a period of sovereignty for a short time for the people of Israel. This is the model or the type that the Jewish people had of what the Messiah was going to look like. So it's necessary for Jesus to say, no, that's not what the Messiah is going to do. That's not what my mission is. In summary, this is what Jesus' message is. His message is, I'm the Messiah, a king from the line of David, and my mission is to establish a kingdom of peace filled with the glory of God. As I say those words, I recognize that where we stand, it's sometimes easy to feel distant from those realities. We're separated geographically and culturally and temporally from the Jewish people. There's a difficulty here for us to really enter into these truths. But church, we need to understand that Jesus was the Messiah then and he is still the Messiah now. Here, Jesus is currently in the present our messianic king. As he continued his ministry in Jerusalem, he drew nearer and nearer to the cross. When the time came to be taken by the Roman authorities, 
he could have called the host of heaven down to vindicate him. He could have called God's armies down to make sure that the Son of God was not harmed. But instead, he gave himself up to be killed. And as he was nailed to the cross, he allowed it to happen so that he could make and bring peace. Our iniquities have made us enemies of God. Because of our wickedness and animosity to the Almighty, his wrath was upon us. We couldn't have peace with God in the way we used to be. But Jesus, our King, carried our transgressions, our sins, and bore them in his body on the cross. As he was nailed there, he assumed the wrath that was rightfully to be given to us. So that we could have peace with God. It almost seems corny to quote in Christ alone, but on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin on him was laid, and here in the death of Christ, we live. And so often we end the story there, but it doesn't end there, does it? Once a king is coronated, what follows? His rule. Jesus rose from the dead, defeated the grave for us, and then ascended. And he rose further still, and now he sits at the right hand of God, actively ruling the kingdom that he has inaugurated. The kingdom that we're a part of. In light of all this, I have two questions for us this morning. The first one is this, are we subjects of King Jesus? Some of us may think we are and many of us may say we are, but are we acting like subjects of King Jesus? I know sometimes I feel like I'm buddies with Jesus and he's my pal, or sometimes I feel distant and Jesus is my acquaintance. Are we subjects, servants of King Jesus? Is our posture one of obedience and servitude? Maybe you're here this morning and you know for a fact that you're not part of this kingdom. You know for a fact that you don't have any relationship with Jesus Christ, let alone a servant-king relationship. Maybe you see and understand that Jesus is a better king than any earthly king, any earthly ruler you could ever know. Maybe you understand that service to him would be so much more fulfilling than service to your desires, service to your wants, even service to your needs. It would be. If you find yourself here this morning and you want to know how you can start this relationship, how you can accept Jesus as your king, it's actually 
theoretically quite simple. Your citizenship in the kingdom is decided by one thing and one thing alone. Your understanding that your work and your actions cannot save yourself and your complete surrender and turning in faith to King Jesus. Relying on the work and power of Jesus and not any of the power within yourself. I say it's simple, but that's really hard. It's not easy. Your king would have your all. Once you are his citizens, he would require much of you. But your faithful service to him is a guarantee that you are safe and eternally secure in the walls of his love. Are we subjects of King Jesus? And if we would and could truthfully answer yes to that question, we have the next question. Are we contributing to his kingdom? Jesus came and inaugurated his kingdom here on earth. And yes, we look forward to the day that he will return in all of his glory and purify and sanctify the earth. The prophets say that on that day, the glory of God will cover the earth as the sea. Not one crevice, not one ounce of land will be hidden from his glory. Not one human heart will be without understanding. But as we wait for that day, as we hope for our king's return, we still work and labor to manifest his kingdom more fully in the world that we currently live in. This is part of his plan to bring peace. He first brings us peace and then commissions us to bring peace to others. Blessed are the peacemakers, says Jesus, for they shall be called sons of God. Are you a peacemaker? At home? At work? At school? On the bus, for goodness sake. I know I'm usually not, at least at work, a peacemaker. Often I'm not a peacemaker at home. Often I would care more for my own desires and my own wants than peace, which is ultimately God's desires and God's wants. What's it even look like to be a peacemaker? That's a big question, especially in our day and age. But it seems that it needs to start with us sharing with others about the one who has brought us peace. As we prepare for a time of communion, the great symbol and remembrance of the peace that was bought for us. I ask one last perhaps probing and hard question. It's convicting. When is the last time you shared the reason for your peace with somebody? When's the last time you told someone about Jesus who really needed it? If you're anything like me, you probably convince yourself that they just don't want to hear it right now. They wouldn't accept it if I told them. And they probably don't want to hear it right now, but they need it. We all need it. 
we're at war with each other. We're at war with the world. We're at war everywhere and all the time. We all need a peacemaker. We all need a Messiah. We all need Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we approach you now and understand perhaps that we haven't been living up to the calling that we've been given. Some of us may be approaching you for the first time ever or the first time in a really long time. And I pray you would move our hearts in humility and conviction and help, help us dedicate our lives to service of you. Help us to know more fully the peace that you have brought us, to dwell in that peace and to extend that peace to all of those around us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.